You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 44. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much for spending time with me today, as always. Thank you so much for everyone that has left a review on iTunes. I check every day to go read them if there's any new ones, and it means a lot to me, but it also helps potential guests in the future see how much you guys really love the show and makes them more likely to want to come on the show. So if you want to brighten my day and help to continue to bring on great guests on the show, please go over and leave a review. It only takes about a minute and really does help the show out. In this episode, we're talking with Jen Gotch, the founder of Bando. Bando is spelled B-A-N-D-O for those who aren't familiar, and you can check it out at shopbando.com. It's a really awesome and fun, quirky lifestyle brand that has a ton of different accessories for your life, from hair accessories where they started to iPhone cases and speakers and all of these other beautiful and fun, quirky, personality-filled products. If you want to check it out, go over to Shop Bando. Jen Gotch is one of the co-founders of that company, and we're having this really fun interview with her. In this show, we're going to talk about the variety. She says she likes to joke that she's had 17,000 jobs in the past, and we hear about probably, I would say, like 12 of those jobs. It's a really fun episode to hear all of the different things that Jen tried before starting Bando and what she learned in that process. We're going to talk to Jen about why she and her partner chose to sell Bando and how she continues on at Bando in a new role, and why it was the best thing to happen to her and her partner. And we're going to talk about the two major passions Jen has, the art of relaxation and keeping her creative muscles strong. So we're going to talk about Jen's favorite things to keep her relaxed, and we're going to talk about the habits that she has to keep those creative juices flowing since she's on demand with that work so much in her career right now. It's a great episode for anyone that wants to learn more about Jen, see what it's like to sell a business, or anyone that wants to have a little bit of a more present attitude towards their work and their career. Let's go to the show. Thank you, Jen, so much for coming on The Lively Show. My pleasure. (laughs) I'm so excited. I have been working with you behind the scenes for a little while now to get this interview on the books. So let's get started with your background. Tell us how you got to where you are. You bet. As much as I would like to go all the way back to the beginning, I think that would would be (laughs) a little long, but I studied pre-law in college. Really? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not what I expected to hear. No, I know. So I was basically uh, literature with a minor in philosophy and three years of Latin, none of which have really helped me. But basically, I graduated college and quickly realized that I did not want to go to law school. That was a ridiculous thought. (laughs) And I struggled through some retail work and some temp jobs and eventually moved home because I didn't have any money and kind of tried to figure out what I wanted to do. Where was home for you? South Florida, Boca Raton. So I went back to school for a semester because I thought I wanted to be a elementary school teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That didn't work out. And then I decided I want to move to New York. I was like, forget it. Nothing's happening here. I think if I just like pick up and move 
everything's going to be fine. My parents are from New York. I was actually born in Brooklyn. And my dad was like, absolutely not, because he had been to New York in the 80s. And it was kind of pre-Giuliani, scary time there. And he was just too afraid to have me go there. Plus, he said it was going to be very cold, which I hate. So I was like, okay, where should I go then? (laughs) And he was like, how about San Diego? I was there 20 years ago. It's very sunny. There's a beach. People seem friendly. A week later, I hopped on a plane to San Diego, still not knowing what I wanted to do, enrolled in school once again to study psychology, did that for a semester. And in the meantime, I was decorating my apartment and I was kind of discovering thrift stores and antique stores and painting furniture and just things that I had never really... Boca is kind of a a little bit of a wealthier area and it's newer. So there just wasn't the same history there. So it just like wasn't something that was even on my radar, like that there's like swap meets and vintage everything. So I think a little spark happened there. And and then I stopped studying psychology and started faux finishing furniture and finding like chairs at a thrift store that I could sell for $25 more. I opened a business called Vincent's Ear and Other Lost Treasures, which is... (laughs) Wait, why Vincent Van Gogh's ear? Vincent Van Gogh, yes. (laughs) which I didn't actually have in my possession, but I thought it was a cool name. And I started selling furniture at a bunch of different antique malls. So I had like a few little booths. And the reason that I'm kind of explaining this is because that's when I realized I'm creative. And up until that point, even just the fact that you could have a creative job just didn't occur to me. You know, I was like really trying to kind of fit into traditional jobs as I knew it. Teachers, lawyers, all that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Doctors. So it was the first time that someone recognized what I did as like, oh, that's cool. I'd like to buy that. It took me year. I mean, probably 20 years past that to really hone that skill. But it was the first time that I was like, oh, I think I'm a creative person. So maybe I want to do that. About a year later, I decided to move with a Angeles because one thing that I really noticed was that San Diego was such a great, it's such a beautiful city. It's very mellow. What does that mean for you? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what happened was I came up to L.A. to visit a friend from college and I am instantly connected with the energy here. And it was palpable like there's a life force here that I recognize as not being in San Diego or not being in Florida. And it wasn't to say that in a negative way, but I felt like there's something that I could plug into here that I think would kind of awaken that side of me that without that, I'm just going to kind of just like make ends meet and get married and just like not really challenge myself. So I, I, I don't know if you've ever been to a place like that where you've experienced, I mean, I feel like New York city has that kind of energy. I lived in Chicago for seven years. So I feel like that had it as well. Yeah. You know, it was just like, interesting thing is like when I think back, cause so that was like my early 20s, I can articulate all of those things now. At the time, I was just like, I don't know. It just seems cool. (laughs) How old were you when you got to L.A.? So I moved to L.A. when I was 24. Got a job at Pottery Barn because I was like, I'm going to just figure out how Pottery Barn (laughs) works their business. Since I'm like an aspiring furniture painter slash designer now, I'm going to do that. That didn't last very long. I mean, I literally have had so many jobs. Then I worked as an extra for like six months. What was the most interesting extra situation? 
I mean, every situation was interesting. It's such a crazy subculture. But I was on Melrose Place and 90210 and Party of Five and Sabrina the Teenage Witch. And I <laughs> met Dustin Hoffman. And every week I could just see myself on TV. It was really cool. So then I was like, I think I'm going to be an actress. <laughs> <laughs> so it went from law to acting over a course of little pebble stones. Yeah, I'm skipping like 75 career choices <laughs> in between. I'm just hitting on the ones that I spent more than two weeks on. So I took some acting classes and quickly realized like I have a fear of it's gone now but at the time like I don't like to be in front of people doing stuff so this is gonna this is gonna be tough for me to be an actress so then I was like (laughs) I think I just want to become like the best bartender in Los Angeles so then I went to bartending school Uh, by the way, feel free to edit any of this out, but this is this is just my reality. No, I love it. My dad still is like, I would like to have that $1,100 back. I never attended bar. I was an A-plus student in bartending school, and then I was like, what do I want to be a bartender for? That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> this is all pre-therapy. <laughs> it's very garbled until someone was able to kind of like direct all my energy into one place, but inadvertently, I had this epiphany one day that a girl had come in when I was still in San Diego in one of my booths. This girl came in and bought these weird hangers, clothing hangers that I had. And I was like, oh, what do you use them for? And she's like, oh, I'm a prop stylist for photographers. So like we, I use this kind of thing in work. I didn't pursue that at all at the time, but just the words prop stylist kind of stuck in my mind. I knew that there was like prop styling and set decorating and that sort of thing out there. So I started researching that. Let me just start reaching out to people that are doing this job, get some experience. So there's a movie studio in LA that I think maybe has shut down now, but it was, it's, called Roger Corman Studios. And Roger Corman was like a huge B-movie producer. Google it. Like a lot of actors and actresses got their start there. They have this open door policy. Like if you kind of show up and you want to do anything in the movies, you can work for free and get experience. And then like if you do a good job, they'll hire you $7 a week or like it was like there was not money making. So I did some set decorating there. And then I also, in the meantime, was like kind of looking at this prop styling. I ended up going with set decorating for a while, but what I realized is it's a tough job and it's not as creative as I wanted. I went back to the internet and I started looking into prop styling. There was a resource online, I think it was called LA411, that freelancers like that could list in there so that so that people who wanted to hire them could have a place to find them. But I also just took it as a way of like, oh, well, I'll just email all these people and like I'll work for free. I'll do whatever. I just want to kind of see what it's like. So I inadvertently emailed a food stylist instead of a prop stylist and she needed someone the next day. So that started my food styling career. I ended up working with her for a couple of years and then going on to be a food stylist on my own. And at the same time, she had introduced me very early on to her agent who represented makeup artists and wardrobe stylists and prop stylists. And so they introduced me to a prop stylist who was from Australia, but would come in here to work for a few months at a time. And so I was her assistant. Over the next couple of years, I learned a lot about food styling and prop styling by assisting these two like very talented women. So that's like what I feel like is officially my first career. (laughs) (laughs) I think I was 29 when I started that. Everything prior to that, you know, it was like copywriter. I did like personal shopping, organization, gift wrapping, cleaning lady. I mean, I was like literally any job that I didn't have to like kind of interview for. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Why not interviews? I think there was something that clicked in me that I just didn't want formality. Like I'm really the type of person that for so long just looking for kind of just like when you look up job in the dictionary, like what are the things that are listed? I just want one of those. Like I wasn't looking for this alternate career choice. But as I started to kind of dabble in those things, I realized that I'm one of those people that really identifies with myself, with what I do for a living. Like I wanted to do something cool because I wanted when somebody, when they asked me, like I wanted them to like know that I was cool. (laughs) (laughs) Not that like being key holder at Pottery Barn isn't cool, but (laughs) I really, really identify with what I do. And I remember my mom saying, just do whatever during the week and then you can do those things on the weekend. I was hysterically crying when she's having this conversation with me. By the way, she's had 8,000 creative careers in her life. So I was like, this is kind of crazy that you're giving me this advice and thinking I'm going to take it. Was it hard to support yourself with all of the transitions that were going on? Yeah. My parents were supporting me until I was 30 years old. I'm horrible with money. I still to this day, I'm really bad about it, but I'm grateful that they indulged me. It probably would have been cool if I knew really the value of money a little bit earlier on in my life, but I just didn't. I feel like I'm making the most of it now, but they supported me for a really long time. And then you became a food stylist. So I essentially was a food and prop stylist. And I worked in that job for probably eight years. And then after doing it for so long, I realized the photographer is making a lot more money than I am. And now I've been around photography all of these years. Like, I think I could do it. I think I could be the photographer. I studied a little bit of photography, you know, like night classes, that sort of thing. I just started taking more pictures and... This was around 2007. And so you're in your mid-30s then, right? I'm trying to do the math. I'm trying to do the math. And I don't know if I mentioned I'm horrible at math. So (laughs) I was born in 71. Yes, that feels like I was in my mid-30s, early to (laughs) mid-30s. We just bought our first house. We got into this house and it just really awakened a lot in me. Like it was just a beautiful, like bright white house had the floors painted white. Like it was just like a perfect little photo studio. I was shooting a lot of Polaroid film at the time. That was before Polaroid discontinued that portion of their business. Someone told me about blogging and I was like, okay, I don't know what that is, but I quickly became fully obsessed with Flickr and blogs. So I was like, I'm going to start a blog. Why not? So I had this blog called my Polaroid blog. And what year was that? I feel like that was 2007 that I started that. 2006, 2007, but I think it was 2007. I started that blog and saw some success with it. You know, so so you think about blogging in that time, it's not what blogging is now. Like it's not this commerce. There was more room for just getting your work out. I was using it in the traditional sense. Like I was using it as a diary and I was using it as just a place to put up my photography and get feedback on it. And I was using Flickr really heavily that way too. And so I started kind of meeting other bloggers in the community and people would start like profiling me on their blog. And so it had a huge impact on me. So huge, in fact, that I was like, why have one blog when you can have two? (laughs) So I started a food blog, too, called Becoming a Foodie. How does this bring us to Bando? So basically, I'm doing these two blogs. I'm still prop styling, and I'm starting to shoot for, like, Real Simple magazine. Like, I'm starting to get bigger photography jobs. I was styling for a Nordstrom catalog. My assistant and I were asked to make these floral halos. 
we were just like downtown looking for all of this material and we made them and they were beautiful. And I think it's kind of like a creative consciousness thing. Like it just kind of sunk in to both of us. And then we inadvertently both created these floral halos for ourselves for personal reasons. It was her birthday and I was going as a fluke, just going to renew my vows in Vegas because I had a job in Vegas. So I was like, I'll make this beautiful wedding halo of vintage flowers. I had put a picture on my blog and people were like, oh my God, can I have one? And I was like, I think I should sell these. And I told her and she's like, well, I'm going to sell mine too. And I was like, well, why don't we just sell them together? So we formed Bandeau. And that's basically how it started. We were like, do we go on Etsy? And I was like, well, Etsy also wasn't kind of the powerhouse it is now. It was it was a very widely known space. I felt like a little bit more crafty and we wanted to charge like a premium for these pieces. So we, my brother's a graphic designer and between like the photography I knew I could do, we just put together a super simple site. And then because I knew people like Joy or Joanna Goddard from Cup of Joe and several other people the night before we launched I just like emailed it out I was like hey I'm launching this tomorrow just like check it out just I'd love to get your feedback but everybody really loved it and just posted about it so like by the end of our first day we were on like a hundred blogs and the editors of Daily Candy were like we want to feature you right away to get on Daily Candy then was I called my agent. I was like, you don't have to book me on any more jobs. I'm going to be rich, (laughs) which did not happen, by the way. Why did you name it Bandeau? The French word for headband is Bandeau, but it's B-A-N-D-E-A-U-X. And I was like, that just looks like a word. And at the time, I was noticing like this thing with blogs. There was like this kind of Swedish vibe. I don't know. Like there were a couple of blogs I was into. I just like liked the fonts they used and stuff. And I was like... I just want to change it up. It was really one of the dumbest decisions ever because it's just like <laughs> no one can pronounce it. It's hard to search for. Like everything I know now <laughs> about SEO and all that stuff, I would have done it differently. But that was why I was like, let's just make it look like a cool word. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when Vando came out because I was blogging. Was that around 2009 by the time you actually launched? It was August of 2008. So yeah, just about 2009. Yeah. So I started blogging in 2009. And I remember because I had an accessory company called Jess LC for many years and looked at Bando as a what I called a sister company. You definitely quickly expanded to other accessories, correct? We evolved the hair accessories pretty quickly because what we realized is that we were selling vintage one of a kind items. So once it was sold, it was sold. So like from a business model standpoint, it's just hard to make exorbitant (laughs) amounts of money that way. The other thing is that about a month after we launched, the recession hit and we were selling things for like $200, $300. And we were still selling them because we had a lot of brides buying things. But from an expansion standpoint, it was like publications weren't interested in in pushing that sort of product. Like they were always like, well, what's your under 50 line? So we started by kind of changing the price structure, almost knocking ourselves off, like taking our most popular things and recreating them. And at the time we were just literally hot gluing and sewing things in our office. And then we started outsourcing it to a really nice Mexican woman downtown who didn't speak any English, but we had a translator and she would, you know, we're like, we need 50 of these. Oh my gosh. Expanded like that. And then it was actually several years before we did anything really substantially outside of hair accessories, but it's just, it's such a niche market that it's kind of just hard to break through that way. So we did this one phone case. We found someone who had 
some extra phone cases that we could use. And it had like a very small, like a two by two printable area. So it's like, well, let's just put our bandeau heart on it and let's see what happens. It sold out like in hours. I mean, we didn't have that many. We probably had a couple hundred, but we hadn't sold a couple hundred of anything in hours ever. And I think at that point it was like, oh, okay, we have been developing a brand the whole time. I think just the way my personality is, I think I'm really drawn to the branding and marketing side of things. I mean, I like design and all of that other stuff, but I like kind of creating a voice and a character and something to kind of latch onto. And it was at that point that we kind of realized it's kind of wide open once you realize you have that. Absolutely. How did Bando climb to the point where it was worth selling and why did you make that decision? And what does your life look like now? My life is so much cooler now. <laughs> How did it get to the point where that was what you wanted to do and why? Absolutely. We did not want to sell it. We had to sell it. A couple reasons, but mostly it's hard to grow a business and make a lot of money without taking on a lot of investment, either personally investing or taking on investors. And we knew we needed money to grow, but we were very reluctant to do that. We had taken on an angel investor and that definitely helped us, but it wasn't a huge chunk of money. So we were kind of a little bit stunted in our growth. And then my business partner, um, her husband had been working in Texas for like a year. They had been going back and forth. And she was like, I really, I need to go move and be with my family. I wasn't going to be able to do it by myself. And she wasn't going to be able to do it remotely. And we didn't want to just close the doors because we had really made a lot of professional and personal sacrifices to get the business as far as we had. And how many years was that from the start? That was four years. So it was probably like a little over three when we decided to sell. And then it takes a while, obviously, to get all that together. But we're like, you know what, let's just put it out there and see what happens before we just like say we're closing down. And we just got extremely lucky and found someone who was looking essentially for what I just described, a brand that they could attach to any product. We were bought by a company called Lifeguard Press who does licensing for Kate Spade and Lily Pulitzer and Jonathan Adler. And they've done stuff for Dylan's Candy Bar and other things. But they were looking for an in-house brand that they could grow and then you don't have to put it through all the channels of, of the licensing. So it was like right place, right time. No one was really interested in buying it without me staying on. I'm kind of the voice of the brand, which was fine with me. That's how I wanted it. And it was a perfect scenario. How many people did you have working for you at that time? And where was your office space before you were sold and after? My partner, Jamie, and I were full-time. And then we had a couple other part-time. There was probably like four or five of us. And our office was actually not too far from our office now, but it was one and a half room office space in Hollywood. So a lot of people are probably listening to this that are small business owners and maybe are where Bando was years ago. And they may be thinking, if you get hundreds of orders from these iPhone cases selling out, how do you not have enough money to grow? Do you want to go into a little bit about that? Why you would need to sell in order to grow an already successful company? Yeah, because it costs so much money <laughs> to, <laughs> I mean, honestly, that's why I thought the same thing, actually, anytime we had any success. I mean, at that point, we were producing for anthropology, like we had some big accounts, but to really grow, you need so much more money than what 100 iPhone cases can afford you, or 3000 bobby pins or whatever it is. It just, it's so much bigger than that, especially because of the type of growth we were trying to have. Honestly, the advice I would give, start by selling one thing 
our biggest drawback was that because and it's mostly my fault, but because I'm just like an annoying idea person that like, I'm like, you could do that. You could do that. You could do that, which helps a lot of other people. But for me, it almost was part of what could have been the demise because we tried to execute every idea, whether it be a product or a marketing idea or whatever. It's almost like too much to start. So I feel like if we were just selling that one phone case only, then we, we probably could have survived off of that because we wouldn't need, have needed all of the people that we had working there. We wouldn't have needed the same amount of space to hold all of our inventory. Honestly, anytime I meet people and they're like, oh, I want to do this. And, you know, it's like creative types. You have so many ideas and you just want to see your visions come to life. But I would say if you're just focusing on a few key things, get that to where it's self-sufficient and then grow. Like for me, I was like, but people might like that, but they also might like that. And then they'll like that. And then what about that? In my mind, I was kind of like comparing it to like J. Crew or something like that. They've got new things every week. We have to keep producing. But it actually can be kind of a recipe for failure. So it's like maybe not being as self-indulgent. But that's basically why we needed money. We had laid the groundwork for something much larger. Thank you for sharing that. So now you went through the sale. Was it stress-free or was it crazy? It was pretty stress-free, actually. Like I think it was just, it was the right person to sell to. It was the right time. You know, when things kind of fall into place and you just know that that's how it should be. And when other times, like nothing is going right, like you get a flat tire on the way to sign the contract or whatever it is. And you're like, this maybe is just wrong. Like nothing like that happened. There were definitely stressful times, but I think it was the right move. So everything kind of just fell into place. That's awesome. So a lot of people listening that do have their own businesses might be wondering, why would you want to give up control of your company? Can you go into that? And was there any negative side to that at all? I actually don't think there is. And I'm a pretty much a control freak. Like, I don't think I started out as a control freak, but I think like <laughs> it's just part of the job description almost. There were definitely people interested in Bando that wanted to take it in a direction I didn't want to take it. And I was very clear about not wanting to be involved in that. So I kind of got the best of both worlds because I still have control or a fair bit of control. It's not just me, you know, making all the decisions, but when it comes to like the creative aspect of things, like I'm still driving that. So the things that I had to give up were like payroll, (laughs) (laughs) things that I'm awful at or budgets. That part was great. Now, granted, my creative ideas have to be filtered through a whole new group of people now. And a lot of times people are like, I don't like that idea. And I didn't have that before. That part has been a learning experience. But for me, in a way, like I actually kind of like being edited a little bit because I think it's interesting to be able to have people's honest response to my ideas or what I'm trying to create. So I, I'm i in a pretty optimal thing. Like I think if, if I really had to give up control, I, I don't think I would have been able to do it and stay associated with it because it's such a specific voice and vision. I'm so glad to share that because I celebrate the fact that you did that. It's great to hear there hasn't been any sacrifices on that. I mean, listen, look, there are sacrifices every day. And I'm sure if we, if we just like asked any of the girls in the office to come in here and say, like, does Jen ever complain about <laughs> losing some control? I think I probably would. But if we're just talking about a big picture thing, like, I don't know, I'm a masochist or something. Like, sometimes I'm like, it's kind of cool <laughs> to, have, to have somebody try and take control from me. <laughs> Especially if they're taking over the things you're not very good at. 
So you have shared that you are a bit of a scatterbrain. I'm not saying that I've read it (laughs) or you've said it to me, one of the two. Yes. And you talk about how you don't really plan ahead and you live in the present moment. Would you mind talking a little bit about that? No, not at all. Let me see if I can just get my brain (laughs) brain to focus on that. Uh, (laughs) My scattered brain. No, it's true. It is a byproduct of me just being a bit of a commitment phobe when it comes to my time. It's like the byproduct of that is that I plan mostly for today. And I think what I had said in a past interview is that I plan mostly for today, but I do like to consider tomorrow and the next day and the next month because I think it would be crazy to just go blindly into the future. But I really like kind of like in the moment decisions. Like I like the rawness of that. And when it comes to creativity, when you putting yourself through this kind of crazy structure and editing process, what you end up with is maybe a bit more of a watered down idea, even with social media or whatever, you know, it's like, sometimes like, I'll just like go on Instagram and just be like, whatever it is. And, And oftentimes, those are the things that people, I feel like, respond to the most. I think it's just another part of my personality. Like, I'm not good at really being censored, or I just kind of say whatever is on my mind without trying to be too hurtful or anything. But I think it all just has to do with being really present and living in the moment. Now, listen, there's a negative side to that because like, I don't have like a savings account. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) it's not all cool. (laughs) I think what's great is that if you are the type of person that's a bit more regimented and does like to kind of have your schedule and have your calendar, and at least you could hear this and it could open you up to the idea of letting go of a little bit of that, especially when it comes to emotions and creativity and just letting some of that rawness come through and then maybe keep the savings account and you know, remember your best friend's birthday and all that (laughs) stuff that I tend to be really horrible at. That's awesome. So what are you really into right now? The Walking Dead. (laughs) I am really into zombies. I don't know. Gosh, that's such a good but very broad question. I know. Where does your mind wander to or where do you spend your time when you're when you aren't working? I'm really into relaxing, which sounds crazy, but I do work really, really hard. Like I'm actually trying to put together a plan for a four day work week. I'm pretty passionate about downtime. I'm known for my, my miss, like my rosewater miss and that sort of thing, which sounds totally crazy, but I'm into like finding ways to really emphasize the art of relaxing. Yes. Thank you for putting that so eloquently because that was going to be six minutes of me trying to say that. (laughs) Okay. So tell us about the art of relaxing. What have you learned about it so far? What I've learned mostly is that you have to take that extremely seriously. You plan it just the way that you plan everything else. And I think I really try and pay attention to the times like, oh, I feel really relaxed right now. Why? Or I was actually with Victoria in San Francisco and we walked by the store and I'm like, that smells really good. What is that? And she's like, I don't know. And we're like, let's go in there. They were just like burning essential oils. And I'm just like, I feel so relaxed right now. Like, and I just bought one for me and everybody I know. I'm also notorious for like my relaxing being like reading a book. That's really not a relaxing book. That's more of like an informational book. Just trying to be really specific about relaxing means just really checking out and just trying to recharge because I do think there is something to be said for that. Like especially having your own business for so long, every second that I wasn't working, I felt like I wasn't pushing the business forward. And I think now I've kind of matured into a person that's like, if I'm going to give it my all, like I'm going to have to take a few steps back. So 
even if it's just like I have some beautiful holographic mylar fringe hanging from my <laughs> window right now, a rainbow of colors, and it's just like soothing to look at them. Like, I do think it like can come in 15 second spurts too. Doesn't mean like you have to check out for three weeks, but relaxing your mind and relaxing your body. Tell us about the rose water because I've heard about rose water recently, but I'm not really sure what it's used for. Rose water itself, I think, is like people maybe use it as a toner sometimes, but I have this Mario Badescu. It's a facial spray that has aloe, herbs, and rose water. It's kind of a joke because anyone that comes to my office, I'm like, here, let me just spray this on you. And they're like, oh my God, you just feel better. I mean, you have about 30 seconds of like <laughs> when you feel really great. So you end up spraying it a lot, but I highly recommend or spray that you can kind of just mist in your general direction to just make you feel good for small periods of time. You know what I'm really into right now is facial massage. Have you ever done it? Oh, nice. Have you ever done it on yourself? No, I have not. How does that work? Okay. So someone had left a comment about facial massage. So I Googled facial massage on Google. And the first thing that came up, I'll share a link in the show notes for everyone listening, but it's really relaxing. And there's this woman named Alexandra. I'm going to mess up her last name. S something. Alexandra S. I'll put the link in there. She's based in London and she did this really beautifully well-made video that's six minutes long on Into the Gloss. I'll share it. But anyways, you just rub oils into your face and you kind of smoosh your face in these different directions. It looks kind of, she makes it look pretty nice. I mean, you're kind of looking funny, but I find that it's really relaxing. And I kind of feel like that and drinking a lot more water has been helping. Oh, I'm sure it has. I mean, the water alone is good, but I like the sound of this facial massage. Yeah, I think you could get into it. Please get me that link immediately. (laughs) Yeah, I'll send it to you after this. Yeah, it's really good. It just takes a few minutes, so it's not hard to do and it's relaxing. But anyways, any other tips on the art of relaxing or when is your favorite time to relax? That's a good question. I mean, I think my favorite time just because it's like I'm pretty full on during the day. So I definitely like to have my time. And this is the one nice thing about the fact that it's starting to get what we call cold here in Los Angeles. So 70 and below (laughs) is that we can have a fire at our house and just I can kind of stare at that for hours on end. I think that's probably my most treasured like hour and a half is from the time I get home to the time I have to go to sleep. So I spend a lot of time there. But I also want to say, I do think that the other thing that just because as we were talking, the more I thought about it, I'm like, what else do you do with your spare time? I do like to really think about the art of creativity and creating on demand and everything that goes along with that and what it's like to just have someone say, what's your idea for that? And then you just, you have your idea. (laughs) So I have been trying to pay more attention to what inspires ideas, like what's the environment that's most conducive to me coming up with my best ideas or as a creative person for so long, like, especially if you're highly creative, you just kind of take that skill for granted. But what I've realized is that as my job has become so much more demanding on that side of things, you really do have to treat it like any other muscle to be able to consistently do that. I mean, like I said earlier, I'm 43 and I feel a difference from 10 years ago, just in like what my brain can handle or how quickly I can come up with things or how tired I get after just thinking. So when I'm not relaxing. (laughs) In a good direction because you've been working on it so long? 
No, uh, in a bad direction. Oh, no. <laughs> no, but you know, it's just like the same as like, it's harder to run a mile or, you know, whatever it is. Or if you go out drinking, like I feel way more hungover than I did when I was 22. Or do you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, <laughs> it's kind of just paying attention to and knowing that I want to do this for so much longer. And so it's just like kind of getting serious about something that I've taken really lightly and kind of taken for granted. And so I think really that's the other thing that I'm super passionate about. So I know those are very different things, but I do think it's something that, especially if you're a creative person, you do take it for granted because you don't even know how it got there. <laughs> it's like, I didn't kind of cultivate this. Like it I was just inside of me. I just feel like you realize like as you're getting valued for that and getting paid for that, it's like, I better stay really good at this. So how do you stay creative on demand? Well, there's a guy named Todd Henry that has the accidental creative. Basically, that's his whole thing, creating on demand. And he has a podcast that basically is just talking about how he can help creatives with exactly what I just explained. So he just had, and I wish I could think of, he just had another book come out. But his podcast helped me a lot because I feel like he's kind of right brain, left brain guy. So he can really you know those type of people that are like really creative but then can also like fully articulate how they got there or like they can do things that feel really kind of like broad and out there but then also take it back and like give you this almost scientific explanation of how that happened. I just think that's the coolest thing ever because I can't. It's like I said to you earlier, like I'll say a bunch of stuff, but if you ask me to repeat it, I can't tell you where it came from. Like I feel like he would be able to say like, yes, I can tell you exactly how I got there and I can repeat it a hundred times. So that, and then I think following other creatives and seeing what they're up to. Spent a lot of time on Pinterest. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that you said that I loved was great. I, yeah, I know you already love it, right? Yeah, I can't wait to hear that. But it is, yeah. <laughs> so before this call, I asked you if you had any perfectionist tendencies or not. And you right. said you strive for perfection without demanding it. Do you mind sharing a little bit about what that means to strive for perfection without demanding it? If you would have asked me a few years ago, are you a perfectionist? I would have said no. But when I find that I'm on a conference call talking about a shade of pink for like 45 minutes, I think that's called being a perfectionist. (laughs) So I've come to terms with that, but I try not to put those expectations on everyone and everything. And that's not to say that I am not like highly critical of everyone and everything around me, just because I think it's, it's just my nature. Like I have to, I have to be critical because I have to look at things and make decisions and notice the difference of two hues of pink or if metallic is really metallic or whatever it is. I feel like I have that filtration system, but I don't actively pursue it. So I kind of like with the people that are around me at work, I try and give them the tools and the encouragement to strive to be their best and do their best, but without being like, this isn't perfect, send it back. Because I actually think most of the really good things are not perfect and they come outside of the realm of perfection. I try and understand that. And I just, I also just think like that's a huge weight to put on other people (laughs) to demand perfection from life or from people. I feel like you're just always apt to be disappointed. So I have kind of lowered expectations. And then I feel like I have some behaviors and tools in place that I use to try and get the best out of everyone and everything. And so inadvertently, I get probably a little bit closer to perfection than I would have if I was just demanding it and being really mean about that. 
you mentioned in your art of relaxing that you like to read books and some of them are not always relaxing books, but can be helpful. What's your favorite that you would recommend our listeners pick up? Well, I honestly do think the accidental creative, that's the book that I've been reading. So that's probably my favorite book. I have to be honest with you. I think the book I read before that was Mindy Cowling's autobiography, and I just ordered Amy Poehler's autobiography. I mostly read female comedians' autobiographies, and then I mix in a self-help book every, every once in a while. <laughs> Sounds like a good mix. I love funny people. And I actually think the people that I choose to read, like they've also just like really succeeded at the career path they want, which is obviously something that I want to do. I don't know if that helps at all. I also play a lot of solitaire on my phone. (laughs) 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 You can do a link for that app. (laughs) I'll have you send me your favorite solitaire app so we can put that one in. I will. (laughs) I will. Okay. So what doubts or resistance have you had to face internally? I mean, I have lived with an enormous amount of self-doubt, some of which just came from some parenting methods that my young parents had in place that they were certainly not trying to do intentionally, but just kind of people are just worried about you or how you look or whatever it is. And so they say that out loud, it kind of sits with you forever. So I feel like most of the doubts have just been doubting myself. That being said, I feel like I went through that for a really long time and I kind of have come out the other end now because I tried to prove myself wrong on a lot of those things. It's so rewarding when you get to do that, that I, I mean, this is, this may not be the most inspiring thing to say that I don't have nearly as much self-doubt as I used to, but I feel like I've worked to, to overcome it. Like I doubt I could do this or I doubt I could go talk in front of a bunch of people. Like that would have killed me. I used to hate to just go through the drive-thru window at Burger King. (laughs) I don't want to talk that loud. (laughs) And now I'm like, who wants to listen to me? (laughs) But that took a really long time. It's kind of that general doubt and fear that everyone has. I can't do that. (laughs) How are you going to do that? And I've worked really hard to find ways to figure out how I'm going to do that and how I can do that. And I'm not an egomaniac by any stretch, but I feel like I can do that now. And it just took the path of actually trying it to overcome it. Yeah. I was at this group the other night that they kind of talk about creativity. And there were a lot of artists there and specifically a lot of musicians. And they were all kind of talking about fear. And they're just too afraid to put it out there or afraid of what the response would be or afraid if people didn't like it or, and I thought, my God, I've just realized the one thing that I have never had, like, I'm certainly not a fearless person. I have a lot of like, fear of the dentist, you know, like I have like just the most uh, irrational fears ever. But when it comes to like putting my ideas out for people to judge or whatever aspect, my photography or whatever, that I never had that. And I just thought, my gosh, that's so interesting because that seems to be a very universal thing that people struggle with that I have somehow missed that. And I don't know how. So I kind of have this like hidden agenda where I want to help people get over their fear of putting their work out because I was like, gosh, it's crazy. These guys are probably really great singers. Maybe they've got a pop song in there that I'm really going to like. Yeah. So what would you tell someone who's just starting out on this journey? I would tell them to ask a lot of questions, to find people to look up to, as crazy as that sounds, you know, that are kind of doing whatever it is that they want to do, but they've already kind of made some strides and made some accomplishments, maybe even reach out to them. And just kind of check in on a very regular basis. Like, does this still feel right? Is this the right path? Did these decisions feel good? Can I be doing something 
different to get better results. I'm definitely very introspective and I'm always asking myself those questions all the time. Just don't do it blindly, but do it with a lot of heart and a lot of passion. And if you at any one point feel like you're missing those last two things, move on to something else. Because I think like that's the that's the thing that has gotten me through is that I just feel like really compelled to do what I'm doing and always trying to get better at it. So it's just like finding that inside of you and using your resources. Like my mom always used to tell me like, oh, just call, just talk to that person. They could probably help you. And I was so resistant of that for so many years. Now I'm like, that's the first thing I would do is like, who can I ask? But who's been there already that can tell me? I love that. You've actually exemplified what you're sharing through the whole first half of this interview, talking about all the different things you tried and how you kept reflecting on whether it was or wasn't what you wanted to do and kept moving forward with that information as you received it from that next career path. Yeah. Whenever it feels like the it's the end, it's not the end. It's just probably the start of something else. Like I've experienced a lot of ends <laughs> and um, I really try not to put too much weight on the end of anything anymore because I just know like, okay, so what's next? <laughs> it's a beautiful way to end the show. Thank you so much, Jen, for coming on the show. You're welcome. And there you have it. Thank you, Jen, so much for coming on the show and having so much fun with us. And thank you for listening. If you would like to send Jen a message, please hop over to Twitter. Her handle is Jen Gotch, J-E-N-G-O-T-C-H. Thank you guys so much. If you have that second to leave a review on iTunes, it'd mean a lot to me. May something wonderful happen to you today. 